you have been around South Church for a while, you will have heard me mention one of my spiritual heroes, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. This is a picture of Spurgeon when he was probably in his 40s, I'm guessing. He was born in 1834 outside of London, uh, pastored, of course, the great uh, Metropolitan Baptist Church in London and died <clears throat> at the young age of, what, 56 in 1892. Indeed, an amazing man. <clears throat> he once was asked the question, how do you reconcile divine sovereignty in election and human responsibility? And he answered, I never try to reconcile friends. And that's why we love this guy. I mean, he was just, he's so insightful and so biblical and a genius, so gifted, and had a way of putting things in their proper perspective. I never try to reconcile friends. Here's another picture of Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Uh, <clears throat> this is what I want for Christmas. <laughs> Uh, Spurgeon has been popular through the years. I know Dr. Sugden uh, quoted him, uh, amazing, guy, amazing guy. In fact, there is a little limerick that people put together because Spurgeon is so popular. It goes something like this. There once was a preacher named Spurgey who greatly despised the liturgy, but his sermons are fine and I use them as mine and so do the rest of the clergy. <laughs> And there is some truth to that. Always going to Spurgeon is a rich pool of theological insight. And I love what he said about this apparent contradiction. For we last read in Romans chapter 9, verse 18, these words, that God will have mercy on whom he will have mercy, on whom he wants to have mercy is the NIV, and he will harden whom he wants to harden. Now let me simply say this to you, this is not a contradiction. It is an antinomy. And an antinomy is an apparent contradiction. It's not a real one. I have, uh, the difference is that a real contradiction causes us some problems, but God never contradicts himself. He's always self-consistent with his own nature. But an antinomy is this apparent contradiction uh, between mutually exclusive yet valid principles, and yet they seem unresolvable. Only unresolvable from our perspective. They are not in conflict or unresolvable from God's perspective. You say, well, I cannot see God's perspective. Well, I remind you of Isaiah. My thoughts are not your thoughts, says the Lord. My ways are not your ways. My ways are so higher than your ways that you can't even comprehend some of the easiest things I know. And what he has revealed to us, those things are for us, but the secret things he's kept to himself. So we have to uh, bow with some degree of, of humility in all of this. 
Now, there, we're coming to another section in Romans chapter 9 that will have some equally challenging portions of Scripture, starting out with verse 19. Uh, I hope you have your Bibles and you can follow along. Well, then one of you will say to me, and Paul has been doing this throughout Romans, anticipating um, the, those who would oppose, and he enters into a dialogue as if they were there. He said, I'm sure someone will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who can resist his will? And that sounds like a really good human question. But the response is rather interesting. Verse 20, <laughs> but who are you? A human being to talk back to God. Who are you? And the bigger question is, who is God? And many of our problems, if not most of our problems, come from a faulty view of the character and nature of God. We want to still keep him human. We want to still have some control and understand him. And it's good to understand him as far as you can go. Just understand you cannot go as far as God is. Do you understand that? It's called mystery. What kind of relationship exists between us and God? Verse 20 tells us. Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? The lighter blue in the text on the screen is the quotation from the Old Testament, this time from the book of Isaiah. In fact, Isaiah 29.16, from which some of this has been translated, says... God says, you turn things upside down as if the potter were thought to be like the clay. Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, you did not make me? Or can the pot say to the potter, you know nothing? <laughs> and that's exactly what our world says to God, the potter. Here, for a first point, if you need one, we have the prerogative of the potter. We understand who the potter is. We understand something about the nature of the potter and his prerogatives. Now, it would have been a familiar sight in any small village to see a potter at his will. This was an understandable illustration that the potter takes the clay and he moistens it to the place and spins it on the wheel and then makes what kind of pot he wants to make. And never does the pot say, <clears throat> excuse me, I don't like this. I want to be something different. Oh, but in the race of humanity, we are quick to say, no, 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 Potter, I don't like what you're doing. You see, the relationship between the two is creator and created. The former, not in past, the one who forms, and the for me. Those words probably don't exist, but that's the point of it all. Uh, Isaiah 45, again, Paul takes these passages from Isaiah and joins them together. Woe to those who quarrel with their maker. Does the clay say to the potter, why are you making me like this? Now, it's important to understand that Paul is not censoring honest questions from the faithful. 
you see it in Job, you see it in Habakkuk, you see it in Moses, you see it throughout in the lives of great people of God that they will wonder and be confused, but they ask the question from a position of, of bowing before the king, of a position of faith, but here is the response of a rebel who talks back to God and has no concept of who he is, of who God is. He despises him, he defies him, he refuses to let God be God, and that is our world today. If they acknowledge him, they refuse to let him be God. And when things don't turn out the way they think it should, immediately they blame him. Job did this, even though he was a man of faith, he was contending with the Almighty, but at the end of the book, he puts his hand over his mouth and he says, who in the world am I to say these things? I heard of you before with the hearing of the ear, now my eyes see you and I repent that I ever thought that I could contend with the Almighty. God is God. But you know, we're not lumps of clay. That's where the analogy falls a little bit. We're not lumps of clay. The illustration shows that God is far above us, transcends us, can do what he wants to with us, but we're image bearers. We're made in the image of God, and we are to converse with him. There is a sense of responsibility and rationality and morality and spiritual uh, a character to us because we are made in his image but we question in faith now in verse 21 you have the actual potter being mentioned does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use now when you put this together with Verse 18, the special purposes would be mercy and the common use would be judgment. We read in Jeremiah chapter 18 of the potter reshaping a wheel, a, 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 a clay pot that was marred. But he has the prerogative and the right to shape it as he sees fit. You see, we've got to get our image of God right and our image of ourselves right and understand the distance. The older I go, grow in Christ, the more I appreciate mystery. When I graduated from college, I knew it all. I was ready to be ordained. Bring it on. Ask me any question. I've got a Bible verse for it. And the older I advance in years, the more I know what I don't know, how much I don't know, and how great Almighty God is. And I think I know more about God than I used to. It's just that the more I know, the more I see how vast and wonderful he is. And aren't you glad it's like that? Because if I had a God I could figure out, if I had a God I could control, he wouldn't be God. Oh, but the bowing before the mysterious God is a challenge of faith 
to be sure. So let's take this principle out for a test drive. God is the potter and I am the clay and he has the prerogative to do what he wants. Look at verse 22. And some hypotheticals, verse 22 and 23 are parallel in that they use the same verse to make known. What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make known his power, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath who are prepared for destruction. Now there's a whole lot in here, but notice that he is making known his power. And he is doing that through judgment. But he is showing great patience, we'll talk about that in a moment, on the objects of his wrath. And in one sense we can say we are all born into this world after the fall, objects of his wrath. Read Ephesians chapter two. We are by nature children of wrath. We're sinners. See, that's what you've got to understand. You've got to understand the background. That's behind it all. And if you don't understand that you're a sinner worthy of condemnation, then there really is no way to try to appreciate this sovereignty of God. Prepared for destruction, I want you to note that it doesn't say in verse 22, who prepares these objects of wrath for discussion? And I would submit to you that they prepare themselves, that God has no part in preparing them, creating them to be judged. John Stott said, certainly God has never prepared anyone for destruction. It is not... Is it not that by their own evil doing, they prepare themselves for it? The great Donald Gray Barnhouse, pastor of 10th Press in Philadelphia, the Bible nowhere announces this predestination of the lost, this God's determination to create someone just to be the object of his wrath. You have to understand the background. All have sinned and all deserve judgment. I thought of it this way. You've heard of that TV series, uh, The Bachelor. I want you to know I've not watched it. <laughs> I, I do, I have seen on occasion, you know, the advertisements for it, so I have some idea of what's happening. You know, there's a guy, and they flip it around with The Bachelorette, but we'll do The Bachelor, and there's a, a bunch of women, and he's supposed to date them and give them a rose, I guess, and end up with one and marry them. You know, it's... Very romantic. <laughs> Those of you listening by tape, that was uh, not an honest statement. Um, but suppose, let's change the rules a little bit. Suppose there are 10 contestants and the bachelor comes out and he meets them all the first night and they all go, wow, ugh. First, first time we've seen this guy, we want no part of this. And all 10 of them reject him. Of course, that would never happen because the TV network would lose a ton of money, so it's all planned. But what then if The Bachelor said, you know what, there is this one girl that I really like. And so he 
says, excuse me, could we talk? And they begin to talk and start up a friendship and he pursues her and they fall in love and they actually get married. And the other nine contestants say, this is unfair. I don't think so. You had your chance. Now, granted, every illustration has its weak points, but we had our chance and we sinned. And it's the mercy of God. It's amazing that the mercy of God saves anyone. Now, notice great patience. Instead of immediate judgment, verse 22 says, God displays great patience. Why would he do that? Again, fleeing to John Stott, he says, God is delaying the hour of judgment only to keep the door of opportunity open. You say, where do you get that? Romans chapter two, we've already seen it in verse four. Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not realizing that the kindness of God is intended to lead you to repentance? Or the familiar phrase in 2 Peter chapter 3, the Lord is not slack or slow concerning his promise as some people count slowness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's why there's such great patience. God Almighty is giving great opportunity. But look at verse 23. Again, 22 and 23 are parallel. What if he did this, even the great patience, to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of mercy whom he prepared in advance for glory? He did not prepare the objects of wrath, but he did prepare the objects of mercy. A significant change. Now, this doesn't solve the mystery, but it shows that God is proclaiming both his power and his patience and his mercy and his kindness and his glory, one in judgment and one is in salvation. Again, when we're in deep waters, waters far over our head, make sure we stay close to the shore. And I submit to you the shore is once again, Genesis 18.25, shall not the judge of all the earth do right. That's the first book of the Bible. The theme continues throughout all the pages of the Bible and coming to the last book of the Bible, the book of the Revelation, which says, in chapter 16, I heard a voice from the altar saying, yes, O Lord God, the Almighty, your judgments are true and just. For God has never changed. His actions without, acceptance, without exception, consistent with his nature. And then notice as it says in verse 24, even us. Sometimes people will read Romans 9, 10, and 11 and say, well, that's just for the Jew. But no, it's even for us. And when you share the gospel and share the Roman road, those of you who are familiar with that gospel presentation, you end in Romans chapter 10. It better be for everyone, and it is. So that's the the potter's prerogative. Now let's look at prophecy's fulfillment, the fulfillment of prophecy. For the rest of 
chapter 9 basically uh, hinges on the book of Hosea and the book of Isaiah. Old Testament prophecy that said this was predicted to happen. It was told long ago what would happen. Verse Hosea, as he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people and I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. You see, Hosea was commanded, if you remember the story, to marry an adulterous woman named Gomer. They had three children. The second child was a daughter. Her name was Lo-Ruhamah which means not loved. And the child became a symbol of God's response to the northern kingdom of Israel as they rejected God and ran after the other gods. Israel, you are not loved. They had, the third son was called Lo-Ami, which means you are not my people. And that's what it says in verse 26, in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called the children of God. So here's the thing, God is showing judgment on his people, but then again, the promise that he will take them back in. Now this is also pointing to the restoration of Israel, which we're going to see in chapter 11 very clearly, it's going to be mentioned. But also here, the text is telling us that this is, has reference to the Gentiles. The disenfranchised are going to be welcome in as, what does it say in verse 26? The children of the living God. It's as though God is reversing the, um, the rejection that is implicit in the names of the children. And the God who spoke of judgment now speaks of mercy. And these reversals are not changes in the mind of God. They're only changes from our vantage point. But they show God consistent in judgment and even going over judgment to extend mercy. He will love again those he has declared to be unloved. And that's exactly what happened to the Gentiles. You read in Ephesians chapter 2 that they were at one time separate from Christ, excluded from the citizenship or household of Israel, foreigners to the covenant of promise, without hope and without God. But in due time, Christ came and died for their sins and took them in. And by the way, most of us are Gentiles. We ought to be very happy that God extended his mercy to those on the outside. The outside are welcomed in. The strangers find a family, the aliens a home because of the mercy of God. I love that hymn, I once was an outcast, stranger on earth, a sinner by choice, an alien by birth. But I've been adopted. My name's written down. I'm an heir to a mansion, a robe and a crown. I'm a child of the king with Jesus my savior. I'm a child of the king. So there's the hope. Now he goes from uh, Hosea to Isaiah, chapter, or verse 27. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. So now there is this big welcoming in of the Gentile population in droves and floods they're coming in. But Israel, 
Isaiah said in chapter 10, though the number of the Israelites be like the sand of the sea, the prophecy to Abraham, and the other illustration like the stars of the sky, innumerable, only a remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out the sentence on earth with speed and finality. Inclusion for the Gentiles, and, be, and we're going to see the reason, exclusion for the people of God. That's the way the chapter starts out. Paul says, I wish I could be accursed that my brethren, nation of Israel, could be saved. This all is, is also due to national apostasy, but now Isaiah is talking about the southern kingdom, whereas Hosea talked about the northern kingdom. And God promises judgment on the Assyrians who brought judgment to his people, and he promises that he will keep them or bring them in a remnant. Verse 29, it's just as Isaiah said previously, unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom and we would have become like Gomorrah, totally wiped out. Now the significance of the Hosea text and the Isaiah text is to show that the majority of believers are Gentiles now and the minority would be Jews, only a remnant. This serious imbalance is obvious. And this was all predicted before it ever happened. So we come to verse 30, which is something of a conclusion. What do we say then to all of this? And I don't know about you, but sometimes in my Bible study, when I ask myself, what do I say to all of this? I say, I have no idea. And I'm glad it's only Tuesday because I'm supposed to preach this on Sunday. I'm hoping for a good Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. And it's amazing how the Lord opens up the word as you just continue to read it and read it. And, and that's what is happening. Verse 30, what shall we say that the Gentiles, get this, talk about upside down and topsy-turvy. The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it. Not their own righteousness, but a righteousness that is by faith. It is something of a major understatement to say that the pagans were not pursuing righteousness, but God pursued them and in mercy and grace brought them in. Look at verse 31. But the people of Israel who fanatically pursued the law as a way of righteousness, obeying the Torah, that's an understatement to say that the Jews were pursuing righteousness by keeping the law, but they did not attain their goal. God's ways are not our ways. There's so many surprises. So why not, verse 32? What's the answer to this? Well, obviously election, right? He chose some and didn't choose others. No, no, no. It's not what Paul says at all. Now he begins to talk about human responsibility. It's because they pursued it not by faith, as if it were by works, and they stumbled over the stumbling stone. How do you handle an itinomy in Scripture? I like the way Charles Simeon, who was pastoring in Cambridge, England, early 1800s, just prior to Spurgeon. How do you handle this? He warned his congregation, don't forsake what the scripture says to yield to some theological system. 
that is more philosophical than it is biblical. Simeon said, when I come to a text which speaks of election, I delight myself in the doctrine of election. It's in there to encourage believers. But when the apostle exhorts me to repent and obed- and to repentance and obedience and indicates my freedom of choice in the action, I give myself up to that side of the question. In the industrial revolution that he was surrounded by, he said his wheels in a com- complicated machine may move in opposite directions, yet subserve a common end. So may God Almighty choose that these opposites be perfectly compatible with each other and serve his eternal purposes. And that's why I bow to this antinomy of scripture that shows that God is beyond me. If I deny the doctrine of election, I'm not being honest with the Bible. Your human system that attacks God's freedom as a potter is not biblical. And to go to the other side and become fatalistic so that God's in control of everything and human beings don't have any moral free agency is just as bad. That's where Warren Worsby says biblical balance in this area makes for rich blessing. Rich blessing. It was Augustine who said we must pray as though it all depends on God and work as though it all depends on us. So, the Bible tells us why Did they not attain their goal of righteousness? Verse 32, because they pursued it not by faith, but by works. And they stumbled over the stumbling stone. The ancient Roman road called the Appian Way is a very interesting illustration, and everyone would have been aware of this. They traveled these roads regularly and early on the roads might have been smoother but later some stones would uh, raise up and some depress so you had stones that were designed to give you sure footing but a stone raised up could cause you to trip and that's exactly what is happening here the bible tells us by using these rock sayings that God Almighty laid a solid stone and his name is Christ Jesus. The, reason, the reading before in 1 Peter chapter 2 talks about Christ being the cornerstone. And that's taken from the same text that Paul is using here, Isaiah 28. As it is written, see, I lay in Zion a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. That's exactly what Simeon said to Mary when Jesus, eight days old, was presented in the temple. He will be a watershed. He will be to those who believe glory and to those who don't, judgment. It was prophesied and predicted and it has come true. 
Psalm 118, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. That's in Psalm 118, and Jesus applied that to himself boldly. I'm that stone. And Peter says the same thing. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. He's the foundation stone. So what do you do? Two choices. Human responsibility, you have two choices. Trust him or reject him. Verse 33 says, the one who believes in him will never be put to shame, will never be confounded or confused. Isn't that a great promise? Believe on Christ and you'll never be lost. Ah, but to reject him, First part of the verse, you trip over him and fall to your own destruction. It all depends on Jesus. When Jesus died on the cross, they called it a scandal. Cursed is anyone who dies on a cross. He's a criminal God does not favor him. God has punished him, Isaiah 53. No, but no. He was there for your sins and mine. He who knew no sin was made sin for us so that we could be made the righteousness of God in him. A passion to believe and to embrace. So here's the final message of Romans 9, which started out with some mysterious things about God's sovereignty. It simply settles with this question, will you trust him or will you stumble over him? Jesus died for you. Trust him and never be ashamed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that your word is true. Let God be true in every man a liar who disagrees with God. Lord, we swim in deep waters today and our only hope is to cling to what we know even when things appear to be in contradiction. We know they cannot be because this is your perfect word and There's an answer for it, it's just beyond us. It's not against reason, it's above it. And we yield to you. And Lord, how blessed it is to know that my sins have been washed away, even though I don't deserve it, by your mercy and grace. I pray that some will cry out today, Lord, save me in your holy name. Amen.